We are going to be over in Matthew chapter 17. I hope you all do believe that everything written in this Word is for us to comprehend and understand. I know we go over that every once in a while, but there is nothing revealed in the Word of God that we are not to be able to understand. That's why He revealed it. He revealed it so that we would know. So the things that are in here, if we don't get them, we need to pray, seek out the Holy Spirit, because He's going to help us out with it. Glory to God for that. We're going to pick up this uh, section God's boot camp, calling it yieldedness. And we have gone over principles of this before, but it has been a number of years. And we want to go over some of these, these things again. Because the idea of yieldedness, the idea of us yielding to God is extremely important. Everything that we face falls into two different realms. It falls into a faith realm or it falls into a doubt and unbelief realm. Everything as far as our life, spiritual life is concerned is going to fall into a faith realm or it's going to fall into a doubt and unbelief realm. Whether it be a promise of God, we have the opportunity to put it into the faith realm where we believe it or into the doubt and unbelief realm. Whether it be a command of God, we have the choice to put it into faith area, put faith with it in which we obey it, or we put it into the doubt and unbelief area in which we disobey it. Abraham had a promise from God which he walked in unbelief for a while. But then he got it into the faith realm and then we see that the thing happened. But we know the importance that it had Abraham had to be in faith. God needed him to be 100% in faith because he knew there was a big test coming up and that test was with him and Isaac up on Mount Moriah where he had to be willing to sacrifice his son. And because he was willing and God stopped him God could therefore look back on that and say, this man was in faith and this man was able, was, was willing to sacrifice his son, therefore I can sacrifice mine. And that's all he had to do is get him into the willing spot. But he knew if he didn't have him in the faith spot before the son came, that that wouldn't be able to be accomplished. So he had to get him into that faith realm. So Abraham went through a little bit more than what most people did to get into that faith realm. There was a lot of opposition against him and, and God needed him there. And he got there. But for a while, it was in a doubt, doubt and unbelief realm. Adam and Eve were in a doubt and unbelief realm as far as the command of God, thou shalt not eat of the tree. Because God said, don't eat it. And of course, she repeated the uh, command to the devil. You shall not eat it or touch it. And then the devil, of course, comes along and says, you shall not surely die. What did he do? He's trying to move the command into the doubt and unbelief realm. And when it got into the doubt and unbelief realm, they stopped believing that and they believe something else and it got them in trouble. So everything that we can do as far as in the spiritual realm, we're going to have either in the faith realm or it's going to be in the doubt and unbelief realm. And so what, the, what happens is that there's teachings, there's principles that come to us from the Word of God. The devil's object is to get us to doubt them. You shall not surely die. God didn't really mean He didn't want you to do that. That doesn't mean that you can't go over here. That doesn't mean that you can't step into this area. That doesn't mean that God will do that. That promise doesn't mean that God will come through this way. That promise for healing doesn't mean healing of all things. That doesn't mean healing for all people no matter what they go through. That only doesn't mean healing for people who've sinned. And it gets us into that doubt and unbelief area. That's his whole goal. So if we can, if he can take things in our life from the faith area and move it into the doubt and unbelief area, he's got victory. But if we continue to keep those things in the faith realm or to take those things from the doubt and unbelief realm and move them into the faith realm, we can have victory. But see, so many times we've, we've been in faith in certain things and then we move into doubt and unbelief. How many times have we had it that we have faith in prayer? Have you ever lost faith in prayer? Have you ever gotten to the place that I don't think, it, I don't think it's going to help to pray? I've been praying. I've been praying. Not doing any good. What are we doing? We're flirting with moving over into the doubt and unbelief area in the area of prayer. 
Well, I don't think it really works. We get into a place of faith for confession and we wake up in the morning and we confess good things and we go through the day and we confess good things and we go into the nighttime and we confess good things and then doubt and unbelief begins to slip in. Has it really changed? Is anything really any better? And begin to doubt and unbelief begins to creep in. What happens in the morning when we get up? Well, I'm not so diligent to have that confession, am I? In the afternoon, not so diligent to have that confession. When I'm in front of people and I have the opportunity to confess a thing before them, what do I do? I'm in doubt and unbelief. And I've moved it from the faith area to the doubt and unbelief area. Moving things from the faith area to the doubt and unbelief area gives victory to the devil. Keeping it in the faith area gives victory to God and to me. That's where we have to go. So the two realms here. The faith realm and the doubt and unbelief realm. Now we further complicate it here by adding the, the two, two extra things on the side. Now I set this up. How many remember Steve Covey? Steve Covey came out with that book and he had the four quadrants. So this is kind of based off of that. We came up with our own four quadrants inside here. So up at the top I put faith over above the one and doubt over above the two. But then down on the side, to the side of the one and then to the side of the three, I have willing at the top and resistant at the bottom. Sometimes I am in faith and I'm willing. What does the Bible say? If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. If you are willing and obedient. How many times have we been obedient but not willing? I mean, we surely know that when we were kids. Mom, dad, say something to you. You know, go out there and do this, get this done, go clean your room, whatever it might be. And we did it, but we were not willing. We did it grudgingly. We did it resistantly. But we were willing. So that's why we get that extra quadrant from. Sometimes we do the thing that God says, but I'm not necessarily willing. I'm resistant to it. But I'll go ahead and do it. And then there's other times when we're uh, just in doubt and resistant, resisting God. I'm in doubt and just that's just the worst quadrant in the world to be in. We just we won't even talk about being in there because I'm sure that you all won't, you wouldn't be out here on a Wednesday night if you were there anyway. The trick to success, successful Christian living is staying in quadrant one, being willing and being in faith. That's the best place to be. Now, if you want a, a second best, resistant than being in faith. But it's not as good as being willing and staying in faith. We've got to keep ourselves willing there. See, as soon as we get to the resistant area, we're flirting with getting into doubt and unbelief. Because if I get resistant, I'm I'm letting another will come in and though it's not winning, it's undermining my faith. Now, of these four areas, where do you think God's going to meet you the most? In one... So if we ask ourselves, where do I spend most of my time? In one, two, three, or four. How much time are you going to have with fellowship with God? We'll tell you how much time you spend over in the area of one. Willing and in faith. Uh, what must I do to bring an increase in this area of faith and willingness? Well, the first thing we're going to see is we have an increase... increase or we'll be increasing our opposition and tests. How many like the idea of increasing your opposition and tests? Anybody like that? Increase opposition and tests. How many would like to, just woke up yesterday morning and got up out of bed and said, you know what? I need more tests in my life. How many want to say that? How many woke up and said, you know, I need more opposition. I'm just not facing enough opposition. I need more opposition. We were watching a movie just this week. It's a, I think it's an older movie. Somehow it came out and I missed it. And it's a football movie. I don't know how I missed it. It was a football movie. Great movie. It's a two-hour long movie, but boy, it held my interest the entire time. I was locked in it. It was called The Express. Anybody ever heard that? The Express. It was about the story of uh, Jim Brown graduated from Syracuse University. And the story picked up on his replacement at Syracuse University. Um, I'm trying to think of his name now. I forgot his... his uh, yeah, I can't think of it now. Just that. No. It's a, 
Oh boy. Yeah, I can't think of it now. Anyway, if you haven't seen that movie, it was a it was a good movie. It was a good movie. I think you're right. It was Ernie somebody, but I can't think of think of who it was. But oh, just a just a great movie. But uh, we'll tell you the whole whole thing. Maybe you haven't seen it. You want to go out there and get it yourself and. And uh, you can go ahead and do that. But during one one of the point there, Syracuse had come out with a number one rating in the ranking after the end of the year, and so they had a they were him invited to two of the bowls. How many of you are familiar with how the college bowl system works? You get an invitation to a thing. You st- it should be that the number one, number two seeds get to play each other, and then they determine who number one is. But very seldom is the number one team facing a number two team. Usually, number one team is facing number nine or number seven or whatever it might be, and that's just kind of ridiculous. But anyway. The coach walks into the locker room after they won the final game and they ensured the number one ranking. He walks into the locker room. He says, we have two, pro, two bowl invitations. He said, the first one is the Cotton Bowl. And the second one is, I think it was the Rose Bowl or the, or the Orange Bowl. The Orange Bowl, I think, was the second. He said, at the Orange Bowl, we get to play. And whatever school it was, uh, they were ranked number nine. He said, if the other one, the Cotton Bowl, we can play the Texas Longhorns and they're ranked number two. He said, if we win either game, we will maintain the number one ranking. All we have to do is win one of them. He said, now the the Orange Bowl would be an easier opponent. He said, but I've always been under the opinion that if you want to be the best, you've got to beat the best. But I'm going to leave it up to you. Who do you want to play? And this guy, Ernie, he stepped out, and I don't know if it happened in the real story. This thing is based off a true story. He stood up and he says, Texas. And then the rest of them followed suit, one after another, Texas, Texas. They all decided to Texas, so they went on down there and they played the harder of the two. Whereas they could have played the easier opponent and, maintain, and had an easier time with the number one ranking. But anyway, a lot of other good things in that movie. It was just an enjoyable one to, to watch. Ernie Davis, that could be. Could be it. Yep, there you go. Thank you very much. I'm not going to tell you a word of it. It's a it's a good movie. I don't recommend too many movies to you all, but I'll tell you, I recommend you to this one. This is a good movie. It held my attention for the entire two hours. Uh, it is not just a football movie. Please understand, if you were saying I don't like football, it is not a football movie. There is football in it, but it's a whole different other story. My wife was interested the whole time. You ask her. <laughs> she watched it the whole time. She had a good time with it. Anyway, not about movies. But I just thought that was a great scene in there. If you want to be the best, you got to beat the best. So sometimes we think an opposition and test, we're not a, we, we want the easy way. We want the way of less, not the way of more. But sometimes we have to increase our opposition, increase our test. If you are a weightlifter, how do you get to be stronger? By increasing the weight. You've got to increase the opposition that you go against. So what must I do to bring an increase? Well, we've got to grow. We've got to grow. And the way that we've got to grow is we have to face some opposition and some tests. Opposition and tests are opportunities to grow. They're not setbacks in your life. They're opportunities to grow. But we've so often been, been uh, brought into the thing that, no, opposition, no good, no good. No, we don't want opposition. I want easy. Easy is, easy is better. Well, sometimes there's opposition. Sometimes there's things that come against you. The only reason a test is a test, we've, we've told you this principle before, and this will ring a bell with you. It's nothing deep. But the only reason a test is a test is because it is beyond our ability. Algebra is not difficult if you have total understanding of it. Just remember, multiplication at one point in your life, hopefully in the past, was a challenge. Addition at one point in your life was a challenge. How many of you remember struggling? Adding numbers. Way, way, way back. And then when you had to add double numbers. Two-digit numbers. And then when you had to add three-digit numbers. This is difficult. Now, you can do it in your head. 
It's no big deal. In fact, you can do a list of them in your head. It's not a, it's not a challenge anymore. Then multiplication became difficult. But then after a while, multiplication wasn't so hard. And you got all those multiplication tables memorized and then you could uh, multiply numerous fingers, fi- figures. And uh, I heard somebody, I think somebody just published a, uh, a formula. How many of y'all know the formula to multiply by 11? There's a formula that you can multiply any number by 11 and know it in your head. Y'all don't know that one? Yeah, there you go. He, he, you got it. All right. Yes, there is a formula. You don't have to memorize anything mem- multiplied by 11. There is a formula that will get you there every time. And it works. I'll tell you what. It is absolutely perfect. Perfect formula. Now, there's also, I just heard about this one. There is a formula someone came up with to multiply, and if I have this right, it was a while ago I heard it, any two-digit numbers. There's a formula that will tell you what they are. So I haven't seen what that formula was, but I know what the 11 one is. But it's, it's, it's so much better when you can just do it in your head and it just comes to you. Isn't that better? Mm-hmm. How many remember when you first took up cursive writing? How difficult was that? Memorizing all the different ways that the things went and all that sort of stuff. You know how often I do cursive writing now? When I sign my name. That's it. I do not write anything in cursive outside of signing my name. In fact, I want one time to even try to do it. So I wonder why you write this in cursive. And I couldn't remember the, the letters. I, there's a couple of them I totally forgot how to write cursive. No idea. Because I print everything or else I type it on the computer. I don't bother writing cursive anymore. And it's a good thing because no one else could read it. My wife will tell you no one can read my signature. It's not there to be read. It's there to be the signature. It's supposed to be so no one else can, can duplicate it. But the only reason a test is a test is because it is beyond our ability. So sometimes we have to get into places that are beyond our ability. If we want to extend our ability, if we want to, to increase what it is that we can do, we have to be willing to go and, and do something that is beyond our ability. If you want to increase what you can do at work, sometimes you have to go beyond what you've always done. If you want to increase what you're going to be able to do as, as far as reading, as far as math and all those other kind of things are concerned, you have to go beyond what you normally have done. Well, once we get the idea down that we have to increase our opposition and test, here's the other thing we need to increase. We have to increase our yieldedness. We must increase our yieldedness. What must I do to bring about an increase? The answer is to practice yieldedness. And you can practice this. Yieldedness is something that we have to do to be, practi- to, to be practicing. Let's go over here to the Scripture in Matthew 17, verse 14. We've read this before. You know this well. We've covered it a number of times, but let's cover it again. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say that this mountain move from here into there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, you remember if we talked, as we talked about this before, that first off, the Father brought the Son for what purpose? For healing. Did the Father bring the Son for the purpose of having a demon cast out of Him? No. The problem with the, with the, as far as the father knew, was that he was an epileptic and that it, the seizures also often threw him into the fire or threw him into the water. Now, either one can hurt you. If you have a seizure, you don't want to be in a body of water. If you have a seizure, fire is not a good thing to be. Of course, it never would be a good thing to be thrown into the fire. But, but this is what he brought him for. Now, here's the thing that is interesting. The disciples did not say, how come we could not heal him, did they? What did they say? How come we couldn't cast it out? Which means the disciples had perceived that this was not a disease, but a demon spirit. 
And they did not deal with it in such a way as to pray that he would be healed. They dealt with it in such a way as to pray or to cast out the demon spirit. And the demon spirit would not come out. Now, we don't have time to do this all tonight, but we've, we've covered it before. And you all know that there are verses in Scripture that Jesus sent them out, uh, sent the 70 out, sent them out two by two, sent them out different times, and gave them power over sickness, disease, and demon spirits. And they came back and they said to him, what? Even the demons are subject. Even the demons. That the demons were cast out of bodies because they went out and spoke because they went out and cast it out. Because they went out and did what Jesus did. Went out in that authority. And demons left people's bodies. So these are not novices. These are people that when they have come up to demons in the past, the demons have gone. And so this father brings this son to them. Epileptic. And they interpret this as, we need to cast out the demon. And so they go about to cast out this demon the same way they had gone about casting out all the other demons. But this one didn't go. And now Jesus, if you know the whole rest of the story, He was up in the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And so it was the nine disciples down below who were doing this. These nine disciples were not the three, the higher three, because James, John, and Peter certainly had a higher uh, ranking as far as the disciples were concerned. But they still had gone, had been dispatched, sent out, and had victory in this area. But they ran into this one and they could not cast it out. Now, here's an opportunity for them to what? To grow. They have met a demon that won't cast them out. How many of you have ever met a sickness or a disease or a demon or a thing that just didn't seem to come out? Just didn't seem to go that you, you met it and it didn't leave. You met the sickness and the sickness didn't go. You met the demon and the demon said, I'm staying. <laughs> but that's what these guys did. They came up to, to the demon and they said, demon, go. And the demon said, no. <laughs> and they said, demon, go. And they said, no. And they did whatever it is that they could do while Jesus was busy and nothing worked. And they finally resigned to the fact that they could not cast it out. And so then Jesus came on down and, of course, He had some nice words for them all. Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring Him here to me. So Jesus expected that the nine should have been able to take care of this, right? And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of Him and the child was cured from that very hour. And the disciples came to Jesus privately. Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to him, because of your unbelief. Now, turn, hold your place there and turn over to Mark chapter 5. I think we are... Um, this is when he's uh, facing the demon and says, man. For he had said, verse, verse 8, for he had said to him, come out of the man unclean spirit. And then he said to him, what is your name? This is the time when he's getting into the name of the person. Now, we look at this in the English because the English does not have, have a proper translation for what we are running into in these verses. When he said, For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. It is not that he went up to him and says, Come out of the man, and the thing left. The word in the tense that it's used, and I wrote all that in your outline, means that he kept saying to the demon spirit, Come out of him. Come out of him. Come Not twice, not three times. He kept saying. He kept going over. Come out of him. Come out of him. Come out of him. He's going on and on about this. And then finally, he has a discussion with the demon spirit. So actually what it says is, For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man. He had been saying, Come out of the man. And so then Jesus, instead of saying, come out of the man, says, what is your name? Now, up to this point, the demon spirit has not listened. The demon spirit has not come out of him. The demon spirit is resistant, isn't it? And it's the same thing the disciples ran into. They kept saying to the, to the, the boy, the demons that were, were in the boy, come out of him. And it didn't go. 
And Jesus ran into this here with, uh, with this man. Come out of him. Come out of him. Come out of him. Now, of course, we know that he said, what is your name? And they said, Legion, for we are many. And we know some of the ins and outs about that story. And Jesus does not teach you that you need to have the name of the spirit that cast it out. Because even when he goes on and casts it out, he does not say, now, Legion. You don't need the name of a spirit to cast it out. All you need is the name of Jesus. That's all we need. But Jesus ran into a resistant demon here, didn't he? Because he kept saying to him, he said it over and over and over. And I believe I put in your outline a question. See if we're uh, up to that spot yet. Eh, we're not up to that spot yet, so we'll get to it in a little bit. Now, how do I become more yielded? See, what you're running into here is this. Is the boy and the man who has a legion of demon both have a similar trait they are both very yielded to the demon spirit. How yielded to a demon spirit do you mu- must you be for it to cast you into fire? Wouldn't most of us, even if we wanted to yield to a demon spirit, have resistance when it wanted to throw us into the fire? How about when it throws us into the water and we almost drown? You throw an epileptic into the water and they have a seizure and what's going to happen? That's not going to be a good situation. So if you were the boy, would that not stir you to not be quite so yielded? That is how yielded this boy is to the demon spirit. He is so yielded to the demon spirit that even when the demon spirit wants to throw him into the fire, he doesn't resist it. He doesn't get up from the fire and burned and all that. Say, that's it. I'm tired of being possessed by this demon. I'm tired of having this thing going on. I don't want that anymore. He doesn't do it. This man who has a legion of demons has been so yielded to them that one after another, after another, after another keeps coming and attaching themselves to him because he is that yielded to them. In fact, of all the Word of God, this is the guy who has the most demon spirits, he has so many that the demons themselves thought they had overstepped their bounds. And if you get into the rest of the story, you'll find out why that was. But they even said, have you come to torment us or to punish us before our time? Because they thought they had stepped over the bounds like some other uh, demons and other angels had done. Demons and angels, of course, are different. They are not the same thing. But some demons had stepped outside of their bounds and they were punished. And some angels had stepped outside of their bounds and they were punished. And they said, are you going to punish us too? And he just said, no, you just get out of him. And, and they, they went. But this is how yielded this person is. Now, this man cuts himself with rocks. That's pretty yielded to demon spirits, isn't it? How do I become more yielded? We've got to get to a place, folks, where we are as yielded to the Holy Spirit as some of these folks are to the devil. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, being yielded to the Spirit of God, well, you ought to cast yourself in fire and cast yourself in water and cut yourself with rocks. That's not it. God doesn't lead us into those kind of areas. It's the devil that wants to harm and the devil that wants to hurt. So how do I become more yielded? Well, these principles, you all know, we've gone over these principles many, many times. First off, renew your mind. Renew your mind on the Word. Stop doing what the world says to do in the situation and do what God says in the situation. Renew your mind on the Word. Obey God instantly. Obey God instantly. Stop delaying. How do you get yourself trained to oversleep in the morning? You don't listen to the alarm clock when it goes off, right? You hit that little snooze button. You ought to disengage the snooze button. Don't let a snooze button work. Christians, this is not Bible, but Christians should never use a snooze button teaches you to be slothful. Get rid of that snooze button. Take it off. Cut it off. Whatever you got to do. Don't buy an alarm clock without a snooze button. Probably can't even do that anymore, can you? <laughs> they all have snooze buttons. Knock it off. If, you're, if you don't need to get up till 6.30, stop setting your alarm at 6 so you can hit the snooze button four or five times. You're teaching yourself to be slothful. Don't do it. If you don't need to be up till 6.30, set your alarm at the right time. And then tell your spirit to wake yourself up earlier. And then when your spirit wakes yourself up, get up. That's how you should do it. 
should listen to your spirit. But I told you before, Brother Hagin taught us first year down there at, uh, at school. He says, if you depend on anything outside of your spirit, outside of faith, outside of the Word of God, if you depend on anything outside of that realm, you will hinder yourself. You will hinder your spiritual growth. If you depend on coffee in the morning to get yourself going, if you depend on an alarm clock, he would tell us, you will hinder your spiritual development. Now, our dean, of course, got up the next day and addressed all of us and said, that is not an excuse for being late for school. <laughs> Don't come in here and say, well, I disengaged my alarm clock listening to Brother Hagen and got here late. He said, that will not work. He says, you set your alarm clock for five minutes after you have to get up and let your spirit wake you up when you need to be. And if it doesn't, then you have a backup system. Now, I listened to that and I have always had a backup system. I have an alarm set every single morning that I need to get up. But I wake up before them. I expect to wake up before them. Even on Sunday morning when I get up super early, I can go to bed at midnight, have done it sometime, and still have to get up at 2, 2.30 in the morning and still wake up before the alarm. I expect to. Now, I don't wake up that time in most of the other days. But you can do it. Depend on your spirit. Depend on your spirit. Once in a while, the alarm has woke me up. And when it is, I get on myself. What's, what's going on? Why did that alarm wake you up? Should have been awake already. You know how much better it is to wake up by the Holy Spirit just just nudging you awake than it is by some rude alarm clock? But when the Spirit nudges you and gets you up, then listen to Him and do what you need to do. Now, if you want to get up early and just lay there and pray, good. Get up early, lay there and pray. That's fine. That's what you intended to do. That's what you did. But don't get this thing like, I'm going to get up at 6 and then not get up until 6.30 because you just kept, you know, snoozing. That just teaches you slothfulness. Brother Hagen taught it to us. It worked for him. It's worked for others. You do what you want. Renew your mind. Obey God instantly. When God says to do something, don't sit there and delay it. If God says, read the Word, read it. If God says, you need to pray now, pray now. Don't give Him excuses. If God says, you need to do this, you need to fast, you need to stop eating this, you need to go and do this. If He says it, do it. Do not sit there and say, well, if this really going to benefit me. If God said it, get out there and do it. Obey God instantly. I put it in here this way too. Activate your spirit. Get in there and, and you got to act on what your spirit gives you. When you get something from your spirit, activate it. Just get it, get it going. Obey God instantly. And when something comes up on the inside of your spirit, you, you do it. You obey it. You follow it. Resist sin. These are all things that are increased your yieldedness. Resist sin. Every time you resist sin, you increase your yieldedness to God. Every time, now the opposite is true too. Every time that you give in to sin, you decrease your yieldedness to God and increase your yieldedness to what? Sin. Don't do it. So we want to increase our yieldedness. And third, we want to increase our victory. How many want to increase your victory? Amen. Oh, I want to increase some victory here. I don't want to be, be saying to that same devil all the time when I face that situation, that same sickness, that same sin. Every time I face that, no, I keep giving into that. I want to increase some victory here. So what must I do to bring about an increase in this? Well, stay yielded. Stay yielded. Don't get unyielded. Stay yielded. Once you gain ground, don't give it up. Once you gain ground, you, you got victory over this one area of sin, don't give it up. No, no, no. I'm, I'm beating that thing. I'm not addicted to that. I'm not held by the power of that. That's not getting a hold of me. Mm -mm. Once you gain ground, don't give it up. If you were a gossiper and you quit gossiping, don't pick it up again. If you had an addiction to something, and you beat out of that addiction, coffee, sleep. <laughs> don't give it up. Once you gain ground, don't give it up. Now, how do I know when my prayers are meeting resistance and when they're just not working? Isn't that, a, isn't that a tough question? How do I know when my prayers are meeting resistance or when they're just not working? 
I mean, the disciples, look at this. The disciples come to the, to the son and they rebuke the devil. And the devil stays. And then Jesus steps in and they resist him, but they have to go and they eventually he gets the victory on the thing. The man with the legion of demons, he kept saying to him over and over, come out of him, 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 come out of him. And he wasn't listening. The demon was resistant. And so finally Jesus says, what's your name? My name is Legion for we're many. Come out of him. And eventually the thing went out. The, the, the legion of demons went out. So how do I know when I'm just meeting resistance or when I'm just not working? And it's, it's, it's just not working. Now here's a, here's a kicker that will help you out on this thing. This, will, this, will, this is what I try and use to help. Now I'm not saying that you know, I can tell every bit of time whether uh, it's resistance or whether it's just futility. Because sometimes we're praying for things that are either we're just not there or, or something. But when it comes from your mind to your spirit, that generally is going to generate hard-heartedness to the things of God. The things that come to your mind and from your mind feed into your spirit generally produce hard-heartedness to the things of God. What you want is for things to come from your spirit to your mind and then produce obedience. That produces soft-heartedness. You see, too many times Christians, we process everything in our mind and then make it spiritual. Because we're, we're very knowledge-based. And I'll tell you what, it's good to have knowledge-based, especially Word people. Word people, we're so into the Word. We're so based everything on the Word. We base everything on knowledge of the Word. We base everything on the knowledge of God. Oh, but God says it. Oh, but God says Oh, and God says this, and the Word 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 here, and the Word here. But something comes up in your spirit. And your mind says, uh-uh, no, it didn't generate up here. We're not taking that. What I want is, is sometimes we have trained ourselves that it must come through my mind. I must say, well, I have a renewed mind, renewed mind of the Word of God, and it must come through my mind. And then I'll illuminate my spirit and then I'll do it. But you actually generate and produce hard-heartedness to the things of God if that's the way that you do all your decisions. Now, when I say mind, it can be mind as far as your mental process of figuring things out. It can be your emotions, your emotional process. You felt an emotional stimulus and you produce an action based on that. If you produce actions based on emotional stimuli, you are building up hard-heartedness to the things of God. What you have to do is get it from your spirit. Father God, what are you saying on this, on this topic? What are you saying here? Give you a case in point. Because it's a little bit easier to understand that. Say that Dwight and I, we're, we're doing some things and Dwight says something that offends me. Where, where, where do I generate my response from that? In my emotions. It comes from my, my mind. And it begins to come in here and I begin to process some things. And how many of y'all been there when someone has offended you? How many of you have felt spiritually indignant? How many of you ever felt a, a, the Word of God rise up in, on the inside of you and you are ready to rebuke the one who gave you the offense? And be righteous about it because it's the Word. I mean, that... And you, but the word says this, and he shouldn't do that, and he, sh and I'm not this, and all oh, this words rising up on the inside of us. But where did it come from? Came from my mind. Came from my emotions. Now, how does that produce hard heartedness? Because if God says love them, love them, give them a word of encouragement. What am I saying? What, what happens on the inside of me? Give him, give him a word of what? A word of encouragement? 
Are you kidding me? He just offended me. What have I become? Hard-hearted to the things of God because the Spirit of God is rising up inside of me and saying, come on, get in there and... What am I going to do? I developed that hard-heartedness in there. So that's where we have to be careful about the about the thing. Because sometimes when I... And especially word people, because sometimes the Word of God, you know, everything's Word. Everything, Word this, Word this, Word this, Word this, Word this. And I got all this Word. And, and, and sometimes we just do it out of that. How many times have we listened to people and we have a discussion going on wherever at work and a discussion's going on and we hear them say something about, the, about God and they put God down or they say something derogatory about God. And what do we process? Well, the Word of God doesn't say that. And I begin to, if, if I'm a head person, I begin to process head stuff. I begin to process what the Word of God says. And you'll generally come out there and say, the Word of God doesn't say that. The Word of God, the God is this. God is, and we begin to teach them principles of the Word to people who don't respect them. And you know how far that'll get you? Won't get you real far. I mean, it means a whole but this but this meant so much to me when I learned this. Because you're a believer. They're not. They don't believe those principles. What do you need to do? Listen. From the Spirit. What's the Spirit of God saying? I gotta generate the response from my spirit. Now, if I generate that response in my head and I have all this word flowing around, and then God comes up and He says something, say this to them, but it's not based on a scripture. And you can't quote First Timothy. What am I what happens to me? I become resistant to that. No, no, no. They need word. They, they need word. I gotta give them word. That's not in the word. I can't say that's not in the word. When Jesus is ministering to the woman at the well, how many scriptures does he quote? When Elijah is ministering to Ahab, how many scriptures does he quote? What's he say? What the word of God came up to him for that moment, for that situation. Because that's what Ahab, that's all he can hear. That's what he's got. So as long as I depend on my head, even spiritually renewed minded, renewed renew mind people, people, it's going to hinder you. Even when you minister to Christians, you cannot minister out of your head. Even if a thousand scriptures are flowing around up there got to get what's in the spirit it's got to come to you from the spirit what's the spirit of god say sometimes the spirit of god has something real simple and he wants to get this message across and you hear that message and no no that's no that's too simple no we need something more spectacular we need something Stronger. We need something greater. I was talking to somebody today about uh, people that get on off there and, and they, they hear prophecies. Oh, I'll tell you what. We don't, we don't have this problem here in this church. Understand that because I don't let it. It has tried to come in here. But I will not let it come in here. And, and sometimes you have to stand guard a little bit more than other times. But... Uh, People in churches or sometimes just you get around certain believers and they have these words of prophecies for each other. And they say certain things. Uh, they'll say stuff about the future. You're going to have an accident. The Lord showed me you're going to have an accident sometime in the, the days coming. The Lord showed me you're going to meet someone. 
the Lord showed me that you're going to move. The Lord showed me that a new job is awaiting you. And we hear these things and we, well, okay, we'll see what happens in that. And then the person is walking along and minding their own business and all of a sudden a new job opportunity comes up. I had a word about that. Hmm. Or they almost get into an accident. God warned me about that. Oh, he was watching after me. Oh, I'm so glad I listened. Or they meet someone of interest. The Lord told me this. You've got to be careful, folks. Because and this is why we've, we've honed on it so many times. What is the purpose of prophecy? Go back to the Scripture on this one. The scripture is real clear. Three, three things. Comfort, exhortation, edification. Comfort, edification, and exhortation. You tell me where future is in that. Where is, where is the future in that? It isn't there, is it? It's not there, is it? Now, how many times in the Word of God has prophecies come out about the future? Did not God come to Abraham and said, about this time next year, about this time next year, Sarah will give birth to a son? Did He not say that? Yeah, He sure did, didn't He? Did not the prophet come out to the king and say, it shall not rain upon the earth except at my word. Is that future? Did not the prophet also say, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and burn you all up. And did not fire come down from heaven and burn them all up. Yes. But in every single case where the future was involved, who was behind it? A little less spiritual than God. Who was behind it? A prophet? Generally a prophet. Or Jesus Himself. That's what's usually there. Elijah was in the office of a prophet. Too many Christians nowadays, folks, are trying to step into the office of a prophet and they do not belong there or are called there. Future prophecies belong to the office of a prophet or the word of wisdom. That's where they belong. If a person operating in the simple gift of prophecy gives you anything about the future, it is setting you up for failure. And I don't care if it comes true. Because all that it wants to do is get you distracted. All that it's trying to do is a job opportunity will come your way. Well, God wouldn't have told me about this unless He wanted me to change jobs. Oh, but I like my job. But God must be in this because He had a the prophet came, a person came and prophesied over me. Hmm. I guess I guess I need to need to. It's sowing seeds, and it'll do that to ignorant people. That's why we keep going over every once in a while, making sure you all aren't ignorant. Don't let people come in and sow seeds about the future. That is fortune telling, and it's not of God. It may come true or something may happen to make it look like it came true. Can you imagine this? You, person coming up to somebody single, you're going to meet someone in the future. Wow. I didn't think I was ever going to meet another person ever. And I'm going to meet someone? Really? But then I'll even get off and more than that. You're going to get married. You're going to get married. Oh, I'm going to get married? Really? Wow. I better be looking then. I mean, if the words come that I'm going to get, I better be looking. Because someone coming along is a person I'm supposed to get married to. I need to, I need to keep an eye out. And everybody we're meeting, is this it? Is, is this it? Is it? And we're set, we're set up for failure. Because I'm looking for an opportunity that did not necessarily come from God. And I look to fulfill the prophecy. A new job's come. I wonder where the new job is. Maybe I should put my resume out. Take you right out of the job that God had wanted you in. 
God had put you in and all of a sudden you're pulled out of it. Don't let people come along and do this and don't step into it yourself. Understand that future belongs to the office of a prophet or for the gift of the word of wisdom. If you're not operating it, don't, don't, don't listen to someone stepping over into it. How does a person get to be in, a, in the office of a prophet? They're faithful in the other things. Word of God says prophesy according to your... And that person's faith begins to grow as they prophesy and say the things of God. There are people who can speak things about the future to you. Man, we saw it then at school. Brother Hagin, he had a word for someone. And this is a tough word to give to somebody. And I've heard people give it and it's, and it's been wrong. In fact, I don't even think he told them the, all, all the ins and outs, but while we were in school, there was a, a person that was there. and uh, Actually, it was before I went to school. And Brother Hagin said, you need, to, you need to come talk to me. He said, the spirit of death is hanging over you. And, the word of, and, and Brother Hagin knew a whole lot more than he was shared at the person. He said, I knew that person needed to come and talk to me three times, but after the third time, we would have victory in that area. And the death would not get its hold on him. And this was done in front of the whole school and so the students were coming up and said, did you, did you go? No, I didn't, I didn't go talk to him. You need to go. You need to go talk to him. He said you need to go talk to him. And he kept not, not doing it, putting off, putting off, putting off. One morning he woke up and his roommate woke up and found him dead. Died. Could have been avoided. I heard another person that had a word for, you know, judge yourself in these areas. Gave him three areas to judge himself in. They didn't do it. Two years later, they were dead. Now, that came from the office of a prophet. Don't, don't take things from your regular, everyday, run-of-the-mill believer as if they're in the office of a prophet. That's a hard office to sit in. Hard office. I've heard some of the things about it. Glory to God, I am not called to be a prophet. That's a hard office to be in. Just go through the Word of God and look what those folks went through. It was, it's tough. We've got to get moving on this stuff. If I am hard-hearted and take on a faith challenge, where will my input come from? My head. If I'm soft-hearted, it comes from my spirit. It comes from my heart. With the flesh, we doubt the Word of God. And this is what you're... When, when you get hard-hearted, you can doubt the Word of God. You get yourself into the doubt side of those quadrants. Because your head is able to, to doubt. It is your spirit with which we believe the Word of God. We renew our mind to believe it. But it's through the spirit that we have that faith and that belief. With the spirit, we believe it. With the flesh, we doubt it. Now, here's the thing. The input that takes over during the tests and opposition is the one we yield to the most. That's the one that you yield to the most. When you get pushed... To the, to the end. When you get pressed, then you go back to what is comfortable. You go back to what is, what is easier. What you know better. That's why when you get into these tests, now you're going to see, what am I really relying on? What am I being pushed back into? And these tests can show, Father God, look what I did. Israel's walking in, in trusting in God, trusting in God. Then they come to a place where there's no water and it pushed them to the brink. They didn't have any water for yesterday. They didn't have any water the day before. It came to a place. They thought there might be some water. There's no water there. And they put them to a place where they broke. And what did they do? Relied on the input from their head. Relied not from the input from their spirit. Relied from the input of their head. And they doubted the Word of God. You have brought us here to kill us. Because that test brought it out. Whereas God says, no, I brought you here to get you water from the rock. What's the problem here? It's no big deal. All right, here's the thing you got to get. If I yield myself to Satan, I am under his authority. This is what you call as a state of possession. You're possessed. If I yield myself to Satan, I am under his authority. And this is where you're in a state of possession or possessed. If I yield myself to sin, I am under its authority. This is what you call the state of fleshly, flesh state. It's a fleshly person. If I yield myself to sin, I am under its authority. If every time I am approached with the idea to sin, I know that I'm not supposed to do that. I know I'm not supposed to say that. I know I'm not supposed to think that. I know I'm not supposed to do that. But I do it. I'm yielding to sin and giving myself under its authority. 
If I yield myself to God, I am under His authority. And this is what you would call spiritual. Remember the centurion. I too am a man under authority. And I say that this man go and he goes and this man come and he comes. He was under the Roman authority, therefore he had Roman power. Where do you yield yourself during times of non-test, in particularly times of testing? What do you yield to? What is it that can push you into the brink to be hard-hearted? What is it that can push you over to the place where you are taking input from your head, not from your spirit anymore? What is it that does that? Is it financial stuff? Is it health stuff? Is it healing things? Is it things about obedience to the Word of God? Is it trust in relationships? What is it that can push you over into that area? Well, I put it this way. If I willingly disobey God when I could obey, how can I overcome when I am challenged? If I willingly disobey God when I could obey, how can I overcome when I am challenged? The problem that comes in with the disciples is that they met a force that was more yielded than they were. I had this from Creflo Dollar. I kind of summarize this from a tape of his I I listened to. When a servant of Satan meets a servant of God, the victor is the vessel that is the most yielded to its master. I heard him say that. Wow, that's good. When a servant of God meets a servant, when a servant of Satan meets a servant of God, the victor is the vessel that is most yielded to its master. You had the disciples who were yielded to God, who met a servant of Satan who was more yielded than they were. But then they met Jesus. And guess who was more yielded? (laughs) If you want to become stronger, you must become more yielded. And you get more yielded when you face sin, when you face opposition, when you face the opportunities to doubt, to disbelieve, all these things. When you face the, opposite, the, the opportunity to have inputs from your head overrun the inputs from your spirit. Last thing. Some examples of Satan's servants. People, demons, sin, disease, persecution, vain imaginations. These are all things that Satan can use. These are all servants of his. And things can be, that can be overcoming us. People, demons, sin, disease, persecution, vain imagination. We have more to get into in this. Just wanted to kind of get it opened up here for you. But yieldedness is extremely important. All through this life, we are working to get ourselves more yielded to God. Because how we are trained is to yield to what we understand. But what God wants us to do is to yield to His leading even when we don't understand. How many of you, when you're in position to Moses, Moses, go up to the rock and hit it. I'll give them some water. How many of you have a little bit of resistance to that? How many of your mind would get in the way of that? because of what you've practiced yielding to. We've got to practice yielding to the Spirit during the easier times so that when the tough time comes along, you can do it. When you practice lifting a 100-pound weight and then you need to stretch out and, and pick up a package that's 120, 130, you can do it because you've, you've practiced on the other. You got yourself ready. That's what we got to do. Father, we thank you for the help that you give us to help us become more yielded to you. We want to walk in such a way that everything we face in life, we bring back to the, to the idea, what am I yielding to in doing this? Am I yielding to sin? Am I yielding to Satan? Am I yielding to God? Am I yielding to my will? Am I yielding to his will? 
Am I finding myself being resistant to Him? Or making myself willing? Am I finding myself in the faith realm or in the doubt and unbelief realm? Father, we thank You for the help that You give us to make us more yielded vessels. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.